if you have a Bible today, you're going to want to get to the book of Haggai. If you don't know where that is, uh, get to right where the Old and New Testaments meet and then go left about two or three books and you'll find that. We're going to finish this book up today and uh, this morning is going to be a bit different because we're going to look at a short passage at the very end of this book, verses 20 to 23. You can get there if you need to. Uh, but this morning isn't typical because these verses aren't a, a story uh, with an example to follow. We're, we're not going to see people living out their lives and say, that was good, do that, be like them, or, or that was bad, don't be like them. There's no examples to follow or not follow. There are no commands in this text. Okay? There, there's no prohibition. There's nothing that we're supposed to steer clear of. Today, in this final section of this little book, all that we really have is declarations. Declarations made by God. You might come to this and say, that's it? They're the mere declarations? Yeah, that's what we have. And before we jump into this, I want to take a moment here and just address this idea. See, the fact is that we can fall into a trap as we come to the Bible and say something like, oh, this is just God declaring truth. This doesn't have any real street application for me. This isn't going to actually affect anything in my life. And here's what I would say. If that's kind of running through your heart at times when you read the Bible, here's what I would say. The Bible never agrees with you. The Bible never agrees with you that declarations of God about himself and about what he does are mere declarations. Instead, all through scripture, what we see is that what God says about himself, what he promises about himself, is the very ground, the very motivation, the engine that turns the entire Christian Godward life. And even if you think about this, these people who had come back into the land, who were, who were struggling to try to build the temple, they were unsure of themselves, they were discouraged by what they saw and what they were going through. These people who had been removed and seen God's judgment and they were in exile for 70 years. Do you think that the voice of God ringing out into their community, they would say, oh, it's just mere declarations of Almighty God. No. They would have clung to these things. They were breath to them. They were life to them. They were hope to them. Because on those declarations, they based their very lives. See, one of the problems that we have, I think, is that we read the Bible out of order. We oftentimes come to the Bible thinking first that it's written to us. We come to the Bible and we think, well, well, this book is, is the answer book. This is meant to solve my problems. This is meant to deal with my issues. But what we have to realize is that from cover to cover, this book is a story about what God is doing in history to redeem a people for himself through Jesus Christ for his glory. That's what the book is about. And if we realize that, then we come and then the Bible redefines our problems. It redefines our issues and then gives us the greatest, deepest, most lasting solutions. So today, we have mere declarations from Almighty God to his people. And I pray that, that we'll all see how vital these are. I'm in verse 20, chapter 2. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. 
and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's this giant theological point. As I pull this all in together, here's the one thing that I think this text is getting at. God will shake the kingdoms of this earth to establish his own. God will shake the kingdoms of this earth to establish his own. This is verse 21. He says, Speak to Zerubbabel, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And that's the language that we should probably start with. This idea of shaking. Now, some of you were, were with us a couple of weeks ago. And, and we went through a bit of this because it's, it's familiar language. We've seen it actually in Haggai before. Earlier in chapter 2, this is what he says, verse 6 and 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, that is almighty, the, the, the king. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord. Now, this idea or, or this language of shaking shows up at various times through the prophetic portion of your Bible. That's part of the Old Testament where uh, God would send people to be his mouthpiece to the entire nation. Okay, he would, he would give their message and, and sometimes they would be able to foretell through God's power, this is what God will do in the coming days and in the coming ages. So through these prophetic books, we see this language of shaking pop up. In Isaiah 13, we'll just give you a few of these. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Later in Isaiah, for the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. In Joel chapter 3, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the, earth, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. See, this, this figure, this metaphor of shaking is for God a picture of removal. It is a picture of judgment. And the context of those verses that I just read to you, that is exactly what's going on. These chronologically could be put at the end of the story, at the very end of, of human history, where God says, I will intervene and I will judge and I will put all things right. It, those passages have to do with something in the Old Testament and in the New called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is where God breaks in decisively into human history. And he judges all evil and he puts everything right and, and he delivers his people and brings them fully and finally to rest and to wholeness and to holiness and to his presence. That's the Day of the Lord. And this is the time that God says this shaking occurs. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament cites this concept from the book of Haggai and here's what he says. At that time his voice shook the earth but now he has promised, here's a quote from chapter 2, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. See, this shaking is a time of the great decisive action of God as he removes the kingdoms of this world and establishes his kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that we we don't have to worry about its foundations. We don't have to worry how long it will last. We don't have to worry about if, if it gets shaken out of place because this kingdom cannot be shaken. It is of him. God will do a work to tear down the kingdoms of this world. And this is, this is the point, you see. In order to establish his kingdom, he is going to shake those that already exist. Those in this world that are opposed to his rule. And this is why we read what we do. Verse 21 and 22. About to shake the heavens and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations. And overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Now it is clear to me that what God is after here in this text, in talking about this shaking, is he's aimed at earthly structures. He's, he's aimed at earthly, we might say, political entities that... That the, the day is going to come where, where these kingdoms and these nations are shaken out of their place, where they're removed. And this is the reason, I think, that, that he uses this type of imagery. He talks about chariots and riders, horses and riders, people wielding swords. And you say, well, this is, this is odd, isn't it? Because we don't deal with this anymore. Well, maybe people in the, in the last day, they'll, they'll go back to using swords. And some people interpret it like that. I think that's silly. Oh, maybe we're going to go back to using chariots. I don't know anything about horses. That's going to be a bad day for me. Maybe we'll go back to that. No, 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 no. What's going on here is God is connecting to something. He's connecting. He, he's looking at the nations of their day and he's saying, what are the symbols of their power? What are the symbols of their might? What are the reasons that you put your trust in nations and kingdoms on this earth? Because of these symbols of power. saying in, in that day, all of those symbols of power, the fact that, that these kingdoms are so glorious, now all of those will be torn down and they will be overthrown. Another reason that I think he uses this language, it's very specific. I think he's connecting with, with an identity of this people of Israel. These people whom, whom God had saved, who he had taken to himself, and then finally who, who experienced his judgment and were exiled out of the land for 70 years. He connects to something for them. Think, do this. Think like a Hebrew for a second. To, to whatever degree you can, whatever you know about the Old Testament and the, the, the people of Israel, think like a Hebrew for just a minute. If you're thinking about your history as a people... What is the story that is most prominent for your identity? What is the story that highlights most of all in all of your history the power of God among his people? The power of God to rescue his people. The power of God to bring them out from under oppression and slavery and foreign kingdoms and kings. Where's the story where he brought us out from under a foreign king? Anybody? The Exodus. This was the pinnacle. And it, even through the Old Testament, if you read the, the whole Old Testament, over and over and over and over again, the people of Israel point back to the Exodus so, saying, remember, that's our God. That he rescued us. 
That's our identity. We're the people who are delivered by him. He took us and made a covenant with us and, and he took us through the waters and he rescued us. The exodus to these people was central to their thinking and their identity. And if you go back to that story, that story of the exodus, um, and God brings them through and rescue, rescues them through the sea. You remember the parting of the Red Sea. And when they get to the other side, when they get to the banks on the other side, they sing. They sing a song that, that, that likely became part of the identity of this people. And here's the song that they sing. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song, saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. The language about the horse and the rider isn't just about horses and chariots. It's about this God is the God who rescues. This is our God and he will become our salvation. And now God is connecting to that again. And when he says, I will shake the kingdoms, he's referencing that saying, it will happen again. Others think that he's referring to a second story in the past of the people of Israel. He says, everyone will go down by the sword of his brothers. This is likely referencing a story from the time of the judges. You remember Gideon? In Judges 7, we read this story. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword in the opposing camp, every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the point here is that it's utterly improbable apart from the power of God. It is utterly improbable, dare we say impossible, apart from the power of God. That these people are going to be rescued. That, 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 that they're going to see triumph. That they're going to see their kingdom rise. It's improbable. And this is why God is referencing, do you remember the Exodus? Do you remember the time with Gideon? It is improbable and it's only by my power. And this is what we're talking about. God promises this beat down, discouraged people, look forward because I'm going to do it again. God will shake the kingdoms of this earth. And he will establish his own. For some of you, this might sound like a, a negative thing, a, a bad thing. Well, this, is so, this is so violent. This is so troubling to me. That's probably because of, of the political, historical situation that you find yourself in. Say, God's going to overthrow kingdoms? That doesn't sound good. It would if you were in a kingdom that was oppressing you right now. It would sound good if, if you were a Hebrew person. It would sound good today. And realize this, there's the people of God right now who, who are hunkered down, uh, whispering songs of praise rather than singing them loudly. Why? Because a kingdom is oppressing them. There are believers in China doing that. There are believers in Iran, many people don't know that, who are doing that. And you say, well, this doesn't sound good. God's going to shake the kingdoms. It does sound good to most of our brothers and sisters in Christ. God's going to shake the kingdom. Someday we're going to, going to be with him. We can worship him. We don't have to fear these things, these, these opposing governments and these... God's going to shake the kingdoms. And this has always comforted the people of God. 
God will shake the kingdoms of this earth and he will establish his own. Verse 23. On that day, the day that he shakes the kingdoms, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now I'm going to say this. This, this is very odd. At, at the end of, of all of this prophetic word, I mean, think about what God's talking about. God's talking about an apocalyptic event, a cataclysmic event, a worldwide event. He is going to shake the kingdoms of this world. That's a big deal. And then in the context of that, the very next breath, he turns to, to a man named Zerubbabel, who, who is a regional governor of a small, very small tract of land that is under foreign rule. You say, really? There's something else I want you to notice. Throughout the book of Haggai, Zerubbabel is referenced in one consistent way. In the first verse of this book, it says, Say to Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah. In verse 14 of the first chapter, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. Verse 21 of chapter 2. Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. And so you would, you would think that, that in verse 23, at the very end, when, when, when God speaks to this man, he's going to address him like we always know that he should address him. Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And we don't hear that. We hear something different. Verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. What happened to Governor. And the reality is that, that this language that we're hearing, this language of servant, isn't just different to these people. To these people, the language of servant is theological. The language of the servant of the Lord had a deep history for the people of Israel. God came to, to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and here's what he says. That same night, the words of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet. Go and tell my servant, David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Later in that passage, he says, now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Psalm 78, he chose David, his servant and took him from the sheepfolds from following the nursing ewes he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people Israel his inheritance in Ezekiel 34 God promises I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David and he shall feed them he shall feed them and be their shepherd and I the Lord will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
And you have to understand, see the context of this. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, what God is coming to tell David is that he's promising him a greater descendant. He's promising him an offspring, a seed that will come from his house that will have an everlasting kingdom. David, you think your kingdom is grand? His will be eternal. His will be unshakable. There is a greater king coming. And this is what Ezekiel is talking about. Far after David, generations after David, Ezekiel comes to the people of God and God says to them, I will set over you one shepherd, David, my servant. Throughout the Old Testament, this language of the servant of the Lord is crucial for people who are looking for the Messiah, the coming king. In fact, in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, there's many of what theologians and scholars call servant songs. Over and over, Isaiah addresses this idea of this this one who will come, who will be called the servant. I'm going to read you a couple of these. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Later in that passage, I am the Lord, I have called you, speaking to the servant, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. So the servant is going to be a covenant. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Later, Isaiah would say, Behold my servant, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And if you go past this verse, you go into Isaiah 53, which many of you have heard many times, still speaking about the servant of the Lord. Here's what it says. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And what? And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be justified. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. See, to a Hebrew person, this wasn't just about the fact that Zerubbabel in some way would serve God. This was that he would be the servant of God. He would be the king who would come and be a covenant for the people. He would be a light to the nations. He would be the one to bear iniquity 
He would be the one to shepherd Israel. He would be the one to sit on an everlasting throne. And if you're a Hebrew, you just heard God say, He's he's coming? God goes further. I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, and make you, verse 23, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So Zerubbabel is called the servant. He's called chosen. And now God says that he takes him for a very special role. He is going to make him like a signet ring. Now we don't deal with this very much in our culture. At least I don't think so. This idea of a signet ring. In ancient times and and throughout uh, the Old Testament era, and you can even see this, I think, in Daniel and the book of Esther in your Bible, that the signet ring was was something that sealed a contract or or, or things like this, or or decrees of a king. So think of a contract that that you would um, cut today, and at the end, what do you do? Think of buying a home. How many forms do you have to sign? Like 45 of them. And you sign them. That's, that's your seal. That's how, you know, I'm, I'm agreeing to this. This is what I'm doing. I'm purposing to go forward with this. In, in the Old Testament times, what they would do, especially kings, is they would have a seal on their ring. It was the, it was the symbol of their kingdom. That was the symbol of their authority and their power in all things. And so they would cut some type of a contract. They would roll this thing up and to seal it, they would drip hot wax where, the, where this parchment comes together. And while that wax was still hot, the... The king would come with his ring and press it into that warm wax. And it would seal whatever was in that document. It would seal his decisions. It would seal his, his purposes. It would say, whatever this document says, that will go forward. I have chosen to do that. And what God says about this Zerubbabel, this servant, this I would say messianic king that they had expected. He says, I will take you and you will be like my stamp of approval. Say, what what on earth is this? This is God's poetic way of saying, all of human history will be stamped with my approval in one person. This king that I've promised for ages It's as if God will look down on the whole of human history from beginning to end and all the horror in between. And he will say, I'm stamping it with this one man. This kingly figure will be my seal on all of my purposes in this world. And if you're like me, you're saying to yourself, that seems like a pretty tall order for a regional government under a foreign rule. That seems like a pretty tall order for someone that that I've basically never heard of in the Bible. Real quick, I want to give you one other place where this man shows up. The beginning of your New Testament, Matthew opens this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. This prophecy isn't about a regional king. It's about the greater king who would come from him. 
When God spoke this, he was looking forward to his Christ. He was looking forward at the one who would bring in an everlasting kingdom, who would be enthroned, who would be exalted, who would be crowned. This is the final expression of the kingdom at the last day. God will shake the kingdoms of the earth and he will install his king and his name is Jesus. This prophecy at the end of of a little book called Haggai is about Jesus Christ, your risen, crucified, exalted, enthroned above the kingdoms, Lord of the earth. He is over all history he is over all evil. He is over all hearts. He will shake kingdoms and he will establish his own. And the people of God say, Amen. Come, come Lord Jesus. In another one of the, the little, what we call minor prophets, this is what we hear in the book of Daniel. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The book is about Jesus. Jesus. From start to finish, let's pray.